Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. For the first time, I think it's the first time I'm actually going to be using this for my notes. But I have so much trust in that, I brought the backup. If all goes south, you know, if the whole digital world collapses, I still know how to use paper. All right, we got uh, children's church. There we go. Well, I saw some uh, getting a head start. There's like Sooners at the... Anybody remember my password? <laughs> there we go. All right. I think it's like one, two, three, or something like that. All right. Some of you are not sitting where you're supposed to be sitting. <laughs> this throws off the person up front, I gotta tell you. It's disconcerting. Houses, you should be over there. Benders, you should be right here. Uh, what, what houses? What are you doing? This is your place. Houses, excuse me. Yeah, houses and houses. Yeah. All right. Well, it's a conspiracy to throw me off. I know. Well, Ryan, uh, you know, has been preparing us for a deep dive into the Book of Acts by going through the, um, the gospel according to Luke, both books being written by the same man. So one follows the other, right? Uh, Acts is a continuation, or if you like to think of it as a sequel uh, to the gospel according to Luke. So um, quite a while ago, Brian asked me if I would come up with a transition between Luke and Acts. And so I started thinking about that and looking into things and I thought, you know, this is a perfect time to do something I've been wanting to do for uh, at least a decade, but probably more. Um, I've had these thoughts going around in my head um, about faith and works and love and how they all kind of intertwine, how they work together. And I've, it's, it's, it's kind of a, one of those things, you know, I think about it and I never really sat down and wrote, wrote it out and tried to figure out how to communicate what I was thinking and, and so how to, how to get that across. And so I thought, this is a perfect time to do that because these are all things that the people in this new church in the book of Acts had to deal with. You know, they, they had to figure out this new faith thing. They had, to, they had to figure out how to put that faith into works. And they had to figure out how to love one another and those that were not so lovable. So uh, I said, yeah, sure, I'll, uh, I'll do that. And um, I came up with the three today and the uh, next two Sundays. And uh, it was supposed to be done by uh, me and Brian and CJ. And uh, somehow it ended up with Tom, Tom, and Tom. So I don't know how how that happened, but I I think what happened was Brian figured out that he could take a vacation during this time. And so good time to do it. 
So anyway, uh, I will be laying a foundation for our study in the book of Acts, and I've decided on these three topics, faith, works, and love, which I like to think of as uh, you know, three topics, but one subject. Uh, kind of a, uh, uh, I don't know, a, a trinity of, of essential principles that, that uh, we need to uh, be aware of as we're going into the book of Acts and because that's what they had to deal with. So I'd like to start with a word of prayer and then we'll get going. Father, I do want to thank you for this day and for these people and the, the faith that we share, the love that we share, the, the work that we share with each other as we continue to strive to be the people you want us to be. And so we ask that uh, as we um, look into your word today, that uh, you would uh, speak through me, that uh, I would be clear of uh, other things that might distract me, that uh, your word would, uh, would pierce our hearts and that we would have somewhat better understanding by the time we leave here of, of what you would have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So back in December, December 28th, uh, 1992, I was uh, at, uh, let's see, about this time in the morning, I was uh, on my way from Wolverton Ski uh, Resort, which is down by Sequoia National Park, to a uh, forest, uh, what do they call them, a forestry cabin. Uh, the National Park Service, it wasn't even National Park, National Forest Service, had a cabin that's back in by a place called Pear Lake that was unused in the winter, but in the, uh, when there's no snow, their rangers would use it as they're out uh, wandering around, checking on people and so forth. They would use this cabin so they wouldn't have to come all the way back in. So in the wintertime, groups can rent out the cabin. And so um, these two guys that I knew and I had been skiing with before, they were very, um, proficient. They knew what they were doing. Uh, and I'd been with them before to Yosemite and up here in Amador County. We'd been on some uh, ski, uh, ski trips before. Um, kind of similar things where we go into a cabin uh, rather than you know camping uh, in a tent or something. So I had been with them. I, I knew them. I had great confidence in their abilities. I trusted them. Uh, when they told me uh, something, I just did it. <laughs> okay, so uh, that, that's the kind of relationship it was because I had some experience in this field, but not like they did. So I had a lot of faith in these two guys, uh, Steve and John. And um, so there were seven of us, uh, those two, me, uh, a high school kid, a college kid, uh, another young man who is, uh, I don't know, he's been in his 20s, maybe 30 and uh, uh, so there were seven of us together. And then there was an eighth guy who skied in earlier and was waiting for us at the cabin. So we, um, we got up early that, mo that morning and had some breakfast at Denny's, um, which if I was telling you the long version, that would be important. But it's, I'm not, not telling you the long version today. Uh, just enough to say that one of the guys moon over my hammies didn't stick. Um, and that made a difference in what happened that day. But uh, anyway, so we're up there and we're skiing out. And here's what it looked like when we left. Okay, this is, this is before, I think we're looking at the hump. 
the first thing you do is you ski out for a little ways and then you got to go up the hump. And if you know anything about skiing, you know it's very difficult to go up. You have to, you know, you can do a little bit of an incline, but for the, the big inclines, you have to either put skins on the skis or like me, you take a rope and you wrap it around your skis so that you can just walk up the hill with your 40 pound pack. And when you get to the top, you take off the ropes, you ski down and hope you don't fall. So I did that. Uh, it took a while. You know, I think we started by 10, 10.30 or something like that in the morning. And we, uh, we went up the hump and over the hump and then you get down there, you ski out another half a mile and you go over the mini hump where you have to put the things back on the skis and you walk up again. And, and then uh, this is where we were going. If you look down in the lower left-hand corner, you'll see that there is a cabin. That's the cabin we were heading for. These are not my pictures. I got these off of, uh, I can't find my pictures, but uh, much more handsome guys in my pictures, but uh, this one is just a guy going into that cabin. So that's where we were heading. That's, that's the story. So uh, we're going along and the, the two guys go on ahead. They're breaking trail, and that's a very important thing. If you're cross-country skiing, you want somebody to break trail, you just stay in their, their uh, grooves and you're great, okay? So they went ahead and broke the trail all the way to the cabin. And then the, the two younger guys uh, ended up passing me. They were in front of me. Um, and uh, then the, the, the guy with the breakfast problems uh, was with the, uh, one of the other leaders in the back, and so I was out by myself, and that's okay. I like doing things by myself. So I'm going along and I did, you know, around one o'clock, I stop, I have a little lunch, you know, make sure I stay hydrated and so forth. And uh, we had been checking the weather reports and we knew that by about midnight there was a storm coming in. And so we just needed to get to the cabin, you know, before dark, which at winter, it's about 4.30 or so, and you're up in the mountains and it's uh, just about the darkest time of the, of the year, you know, where it starts getting pretty close. So by about 4.30 or so, it should start getting dark. Well, it started getting dark about three, and the snow started falling and the wind started blowing. And apparently this storm came in a little earlier than uh, everybody had predicted. Um, and so, again, I'm gonna to try to keep this much shorter than I did for the first service. Um, putting a lot of stuff being left out here, but I, I'm in a blizzard basically all of a sudden by myself and I come around a corner and uh, it's dark and uh, the wind is blowing like crazy and the snow is coming down kind of sideways. And uh, I, these two guys, this high school kid and this college kid are sitting on a rock. I said, what are you guys doing? <laughs> he said, we lost the trail. I said, well, no, that's not good. And so I went, over, well, here it is right here. I said, so you guys follow me. So they you know, got in behind me and I just you know, followed the trail, which was indeed becoming much more difficult to see. And we followed that trail for, I don't know, I'm not a very good judge of distance, but I'd say it was no more than a quarter of a mile or so before I said, I can't follow the trail anymore. It's gone, you know? Fortunately, there was a, a little building uh, over here, which turned out to be a high-tech outhouse that they had put in, but the uh, Forest Service had put in, but it wasn't working yet. It wasn't open or anything. But it was up on a hill, and so the hill comes down, and so I told the guys, I said, well, <clears throat> I said, there's nothing we can do but spend the night. And if you've ever seen one of those cartoons where the, you know, the character's eyes bulge out, that's what this college kid's eyes did. What? 
I said, yeah, we're gonna have to spend the night here because you know we can't go wandering off. We don't know, you know, you could wander into an avalanche area or something. And besides, we know that there were tracks here a while ago, so when they come looking for us, they'll know where to look. Well, he said, well, okay. He says, have you ever done anything like this before? And I, you know, I told some truth. Um, I said, yes. Uh, and truthfully, I, I had been with the Boy Scouts, uh, with, with, when my son was in the Boy Scouts, and we would go up to Silver Lake, Capels Lake, and, and we would dig snow caves and stuff with all kinds of people around, and, you know, wasn't an emergency at all. This is the first time I'd done an emergency, but I didn't tell them that. So they had great confidence in me, uh, like I had confidence in these two guys who had planned the trip, and still did, by the way. It wasn't their fault the storm came in early. Uh, and it wasn't their fault that the one guy got sick, okay? So I, I still had great confidence, great trust in these guys. And these, now these two young men are looking to me. And uh, they're having, putting their trust in me. And so we built the, the snow cave and for the next 18 hours, we spent shivering inside this snow cave. And uh, you know, I, I won't get graphic. But anyway, 18 hours later, we're out and just, you know, a few mental problems, uh, emotional issues and uh, a little bit of frostbite. You know, it was no big deal. Uh, got to the cabin and uh, we never went skiing again. Uh, <clears throat> my point here <laughs> is that faith is not always directed towards God, is it? I mean, my, I had faith in these two guys. And these other two young men had faith in me. And while I'm laying there in this, uh, in this snow cave, I had faith in God. <laughs> okay, I knew that God was the only one who was going to get me out of this. Uh, I had thoughts of dying there. I, I knew later on, I thought, well, that was, you know, I was overwrought. It really wasn't going to happen. But that doesn't take away the fact that I felt like it was going to happen. And so, you know, faith... We put faith every day in other people, in other things, and, of course, in God. So as we um, transition from Luke to Acts, I asked myself, what did these brand new Christians in the book of Acts have to deal with? What did they have to learn? What did they have to change in their lives as a result of this message, this gospel message going out to them? Well, they had to learn about faith. <clears throat> they had to learn about works. They had to learn about love. And I want to talk about how faith comes through in Scripture. I want to talk about how it's expressed, what it means to us, and how important it is to us today. Faith works in love. <clears throat> that trinity of essentials <clears throat> for this growing church. So the first thing I want to point out is that faith by definition, is trust or confidence in something that is true. Confidence in God's promise, in God's power, in God's presence. It's something, confidence in something is true. And I don't have to make this up because this is one of those rare times when the Bible actually provides us with a definition of what faith is. It's in Hebrews chapter 11, verses one and two. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. See, faith is not unique 
to the Christian faith. Faith is not even unique to religious systems. Faith is exercised by everybody every day. So even your agnostics, even your atheists, even your pantheists, they all exercise faith in some form because in its purest form, the definition is faith is believing that something that you can't see, that you can't prove is true. So it's not unique to us. People exercise faith every day. I started thinking about how the easiest way of, a, a, of, a, of an example here is the law of physics. Now, I don't know anybody of any faith who gets out of bed in this morning and worries that when they put their feet on the floor, they're going to fly off into space. Right? Gravity is going to hold them. It's going to keep them grounded. But I don't know anybody who thinks, all right, I wonder if gravity's still here this morning, you know? Uh, you know, they don't even think about gravity. It just happens. It's just one of those things we put our faith in every single day. All the other laws of physics, you know, name one, you know. We don't think about it. We don't even totally understand it. I was talking to somebody after the first service. I don't even totally understand gravity. And yet I have faith that it's still there and that it's going to keep me grounded. So we all exercise faith every day, uh, whether it's uh, physical laws that exist or, or other things. You know, we see many examples of people having confidence in something that's true, even when it's plainly not true. So, you know, it's one thing to have, have confidence in something like gravity that is always true, that you always have, you can always count on. But there are people who put their faith in things that are plainly not true. Every day people do this. Um, and, and not only not true, but, you know, lacking any uh, evidence uh, of, its, uh, of its veracity or even uh, plausible evidence when, uh, that, uh, the, that the contrary is true. You know, conspiracy theories. They've always been around, but in the age of the internet, <laughs> they abound. Conspiracy theories on just about anything you could come up with. Uh, and most of them are theories because they lack proof, right? A theory is something that you think is true, but you don't know for sure. But I can tell you there's a lot of people that will say, that is absolutely true. I'm putting all my faith and trust in that theory that it is true. And I'm getting behind it. I'm putting everything I own into this. I'm, I'm devoting my life to this cause, even though there's no proof that it's true. Now, sometimes a conspiracy theory may turn out to be true. But in my experience, that's not been the case with most of them. But many people are too eager to believe something simply because what? They want it to be true. Or because somebody they do trust has told them that it's true. And so they transfer that trust in that person to what the person says. I, I think maybe it's like that, like that uncle who uh, comes to and visits you when you're little and says, next time I come, I'm going to bring you a pony. Right? Yeah, Karen had one of those. Yeah. Uncle was always going to bring her a pony. You notice she doesn't have a pony. <laughs> but she kept believing, you know, for years, she kept believing that Uncle Don was going to bring her a pony. 
Um, and so we put our trust and faith in that certain things are true because sometimes we trust the person. Do aliens exist? Maybe. Maybe. We don't yet have definitive proof that alien life forms exist, nor that they have ever been or are now present on the earth. Maybe they are. I don't know. I don't have any proof that that is true. Yet, if I ask for a show of hands, and I won't, <laughs> I know that maybe a few of you would indicate that you believe they exist or that they have visited our planet or that our government is deliberately concealing the proof that we need to show their existence. To be clear, I'm not arguing for or against these propositions or these suppositions. I'm simply stating that this is an example of how people put their trust or their confidence in something that may or may not be true, but we do it every single day. This is an important part of the definition of faith, Some, believing in something, even though we have no proof that it's true. We may have some evidence, but we don't have that proof yet. Now, please don't get hung up on the topic of aliens. Okay, I don't want you sitting there today, you know, you're drawing pictures, you know, aliens, you know, because hey. there's lots of other things that people put their faith in uh, in relationship to uh, this idea. For, uh, you know, I think of election fraud. There's a topic that's come up. You know, uh, was there election fraud? Was there not? I don't know. Maybe there was, but I haven't seen the proof. There's some, maybe some evidence. I don't know. But that's one of those things that somebody, a lot of people are getting behind it, right? They absolutely believe it, even though they don't have the definitive proof. Climate change, gun control, right? You take, pick a topic. <laughs> There's a conspiracy about it, and there are people who will believe, get behind that conspiracy simply because somebody they trust or uh, maybe somebody, you know, all right, somebody they trust, but why they trust that person is another idea. Maybe they just have the most followers on social media, you know. But they trust that person, and that person says this, and so therefore they believe it. Um, again, any, any given belief may eventually be proven correct, but it's astounding how many people will place their trust and confidence in something simply because it was stated on social media by someone for, that they trust for some reason or other. So they're exercising faith in something that has not been proven. So faith is not a foreign concept to people who don't read the Bible or who don't attend church. And if somebody tells you they don't live by faith, yes, they do. Yes, they do. They just don't call it that. But they exercise faith every day. So my first point is that everyone has faith. Religious or spiritual people who you know, should know something about faith, put their faith in some kind of God or gods. That's, that's a given. But also agnostics will put their faith in whatever appeals to them on a particular day. You know, agnostic is somebody who says, I don't know that God is real. I need some evidence. I need proof, right? And if somebody brings me the right evidence, the right proof, I'll believe. No, they won't. It's very, very seldom you hear of an agnostic. I know of some, of some uh, rather famous ones, but it's very seldom that an agnostic will actually listen to the proof 
to the evidence that's presented. Uh, and by the way, I should be using the word evidence, not proof, sorry. Um, but they will, they will seldom uh, believe evidence that they hear. And so they, they say it's not possible. And yet, at the same time, by not believing in God, they put their trust, their faith in something else, don't they? By the way, this, <laughs> I've been hearing, and maybe I don't know how long it's been around. I've only been aware of it for maybe a year or two. But I've been noticing the advent of, uh, of a uh, universe with a capital U. Have you noticed that? Yeah, the, people are using universe like, um, like it's some personal omniscient power. Uh, the universe seems to be favoring me today. What? <laughs> you don't believe in God, but you can put a capital U on universe and you can believe that. So, uh, you know, people will do some strange things uh, to show that they're exercising faith, as I'm claiming, everybody exercises faith in something or someone. They just don't think there's enough knowledge to be had about God to put their faith in him, but they'll put their faith in many other things. So everybody has faith, it is universal. Even Christians who should know a great deal about faith have been and constantly are duped by false teachers. And why is that? Because we stop putting our faith in the word <laughs> and we start putting our faith in people. And why do we start putting our faith in those people? Well, they're good looking. They talk really smoothly, you know, they're for whatever reason, they got a lot of followers. And so we start trusting them. Many years, uh, there were many people who claimed to know the exact day and time that Jesus was going to return. And many people would follow them. Even though scripture plainly says <laughs> nobody knows that. And yet they would put their faith in these people. There's a lot of prosperity gospel people out there right now who uh, have huge followings, uh, huge numbers of people. Uh, we'll follow them, uh, sheep being led astray, because like I say, they're good looking, they're smooth talking, they're positive outlooking. <sighs> you know, they feel good messages that they present without ever opening the Bible. And yet, people who claim to know the Bible will follow them. I don't, I don't understand it. People put their trust and confidence in them, not because they're speaking the truth, but because they appear to be trustworthy by the world's standards. And so they put their confidence in them. Everyone has faith. Everyone exercises faith every day. Many people won't believe God exists unless they can see visible proof. Um, others believe God exists, but they reject him. Once, even though you know, they, they admit that, that he exists, but they reject him. But here's a very important distinction we have to make, because words matter, and that's why I was concerned about myself saying proof instead of evidence a little earlier. Uh, but words matter, and there's a crucial word that we need to understand because we use it all the time. And it's the word believe. What does it mean to believe in God? Right? Um, believing and having faith are not the same thing. 
and I point you to the book of James, James chapter 2, verse 19. He writes, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You see the difference? <laughs> the demons don't have faith in God, but they do believe in God. Big difference. They're acknowledging the existence of God. They're acknowledging the divine attributes of God because they know him. But they don't put their faith in him. They don't have faith in God. Big difference between believing and having faith. Now, you figure at least the demons have the good sense to shudder, right? Uh, God's presence, though, is known by everyone, not just the demons. Paul writes in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Everyone deep down someplace is aware that God exists. They believe God exists. Now, what do they do? They immediately put a capital U on universe or some other way of acknowledging that there is a God, right? But they reject the God. But he is knowable, Paul says. Everyone has that knowledge. Nobody has an excuse. Now, I want a, um, a little caveat here because uh, as I was... <laughs> As I was going over this this week, I thought, you know, last week we sang a song. Uh, if you were here last week, we sang a song uh, called, I, think, I believe it's called The Creed. Is that, that right, that name of it? Uh, but the words, I believe, I don't know how many times they're <laughs> It's like every line, right? I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. Well, one thing I, I thought as I was thinking about that is even though the word believe in its raw form, it's its basic understanding simply means I intellectually acknowledge the existence of something. I believe God exists. We have to understand how a person uses the word because as you well know, most words that we use in the English language Get, get used and uh, repurposed. Uh, you know, the, the, a lot of them do. So very often, you take the word believe in that song I'm talking about that we did last week. I believe, how about that? <laughs> I can't get around that. I have to say that <laughs> because I'm, uh, words matter and, and I don't want to use the word think when I mean believe. And so I'm very careful about that when I'm up here. If I think something is true, that means I'm not sure, but if I believe something is true, I'm sure of it. So I believe that song last week, using the word believe, I believe the author, the author probably has attached a different meaning to that word believe when we're singing that song. He's, he's making an assumption when you sing that, I believe in God the Father, that it's more than just an intellectual demonic acknowledgement <laughs> that God exists, okay? It's, it's more, I believe and I have put my faith in 
Okay, so we have to understand how a person uses a word and not force our definition, even if it's the correct one, uh, onto what they're saying. We have to understand what they mean by it. So don't worry, next time we sing that song, it's okay. But we're called by faith to live by faith rather than by sight, right? We're called to live by faith rather than, um, than on uh, only what we can see. Now, what we can see is important, but we're called to live by faith. We don't simply believe, we put our lives in God's hands. So faith, first of all, is trust or confidence that something is true. But faith is trust in the object of our faith and not simply the belief. So that's another important point. Faith is not the end game. Okay, faith is not the thing we're, we're shooting for. Once we reach faith, once we get faith, we're there, right? We're spiritually mature once we have faith. No, because everybody has faith. Everybody has faith in something. It's the object of our faith that makes the difference. So faith is exercised by everyone, but the object is what sets us apart from those who simply believe. And that relationship you know, ebbs and flows as, as faith uh, fades or is tested and then it grows again. Uh, you know, we're told in James 1, 3 that, that we're tested and as we persevere, our faith increases. Faith comes in different amounts, uh, different qualities, I guess, of faith. But without faith, the writer of Hebrews tells us, it's impossible to please God. Now, I got to thinking about that verse. So if, if these people who are demanding proof, I'm not going to believe in God, I'm not going to put my faith in God, I'm not going to trust God unless you can give me proof. Suppose God gave them proof. They still couldn't please God, could they? <laughs> because... Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if, all you, if the only reason you're believing is because God is revealing himself to you in the most dramatic fashion, even more than he, than he did to reveal himself to Moses, which I think is the closest he's come to revealing himself. But in the end times, when God reveals himself, it's going to be too late. Why? Because you didn't put your faith in him. You waited until there was no doubt whatsoever. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. I thought about Gideon, you know, uh, you know he, was a, he had this army, 32,000 men, and he was going up against Midianites with 135,000. And Gideon, I, I hesitate to use this, him as an example because he wasn't a great example of faith. All right? he, he had, you know, a lot of ups and downs. Um, very close to this incident, by the way. He had a lot of ups and downs. But he, he, he did, at least uh, during this time, uh, realize what God was doing, and he obeyed. Uh, but, you know, God said, you got too many men. Because if you win this battle, because your army is good, by the way, his army was much smaller than the Midianites, but still, if you, you win this army, because, win this battle because your army is good, the Israelites are going to say, Hey, we had great soldiers, we had great officers, we had great equipment or something like that. And they're not going to give the praise to me. So Gideon, I want you to get rid of a bunch of these guys. And he goes through a process and narrows it down to 300. So they got 300 men up, up against a Midianite, 135,000. 
And they, God gives them the battle. And there's no doubt that it was God who did it because there's no way that anybody with 300 men could do that. See, faith is what Gideon had to exercise there. He had to trust God. He had, he's one of those guys who had a hard time doing that. But he had to trust God, and he did so. And God gave him, gave him the, bat, the, uh, the victory. Now, Hebrews 11 is a chapter that's filled with illustrations of people who had great faith. I'm not going to go into that today. We're going to look at that chapter much more uh, next week. But, but it's filled with, you need to know that this is, uh, this is like, the, this is like the, uh, the Faith Hall of Fame. Okay, all these people from the Old Testament who had great faith and, and, they, and they did things to prove their faith. And we're going to look at that next week. But after that, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, uh, the writer of Hebrews gives us an analogy. And it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like a sports analogy. It's like, you know, we're competing uh, in this faith exercise, this faith um, competition, I guess you could say, if you give me a little latitude here. And in the stands are all these people from chapter 11, all these former athletes who have also competed in these games. And they're there cheering us on. And the writer says, we're performing before them, uh, but instead of looking at them in the stands, those who have in the past been an inspiration. He said, instead, we should get our inspiration by fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. Because he has run the race and actually finished the race and won the race. And he has the reward. He's sitting in heaven at the right hand of God. He is a supreme example of how to run this race called faith. And the only one who has actually persevered and actually completed the race and now living the reward. He is the prince, it says, or the author. Translation there is a little, uh, little spongy. But he's the supreme example of faith. So how do we know what faith is supposed to look like? Well, he's the object of our faith. That's who we're looking at. That's who we're fixing our eyes on as we're running this race. So faith is trust or confidence that something is true. Faith is trust that the object, in the object of our faith, not simply belief. And faith is obedience to the one in whom we put our trust. And again, I'm going to talk about this more next week. But I just want to say as, as belief alone falls short of actual faith, and as faith is misguided if it's put in the wrong object, so faith in the correct object is lacking if it's not accompanied by obedience. I can have faith in God as I should, but without obedience, what good is that faith? And again, that's gonna, we're going to talk much more about that next week. So if Jesus, the object of our faith, our trust, our confidence, commands us to do something and we don't comply because we're afraid or because we have alternate goals or ulterior motives, then our faith is going to fail us. 
You know, there are several times when Jesus told his disciples, or at least two that I can think of right offhand, where Jesus uh, told his disciples because they couldn't do something, he said, well, if you only had the faith of a mustard seed, which is a very tiny, tiny seed, you could move this mountain or you can move this tree. You need more faith. And after, the, um, uh, after you read about that, you think, okay, so is my faith enough? Well, I don't think our faith is ever enough. I think there's always room for growth. I think there's always, you know, I think just when I'm starting to feel good about my faith, I think, well, I could, I could do more, you know? I could have more faith because, yeah, I trust him for this and I trust him for that. But, you know, here's something I haven't really been trusting him for. It seems like there's always something I can spot where my faith can grow a little bit more. Well, I'm going to talk more about that topic next week. So today... We just understand that faith is trust or confidence that something is true. Faith is trust in the object of our faith, and that's simply belief. Faith is obedience to the one in whom we put our trust. And we need to understand that faith can grow or diminish. Faith has a way of growing or diminishing. I already pointed you to the passage in Peter where you know, he says, if you persevere... As we persevere, our faith increases. And Jesus telling his disciples, you need more faith. And the disciples actually asking, I need more faith. Can you give me more? Faith, I, I don't want to talk about it like it's an amount. Or maybe it's more of a quality uh, of faith. But if we look around this room, I think we find that we have lots of different levels of faith, wouldn't we? I don't know how, how we would ever find that out. But I think we just need to recognize that there are times when, yeah, I, I, I can exercise a lot of faith. And other times when, you know, I'm not so sure about that. So what can we do to increase our faith or at least to keep our faith that we have? Well, I think the biggest thing to do is to remind ourselves of why we became followers of Jesus in the first place. Read his letters to us. <laughs> Read his word. If we don't, that idea of you know, what we put our faith in in the first place is going to get lost. Surround ourselves with those that we have grown to trust and love who also have a great deal of faith. And constantly remember our own creed. Constantly remember our own creed. You, you didn't know you had a creed? Well, let me explain what a creed is, first of all. See, faith is a statement. If, if it's used as a noun, sometimes we use faith as uh, uh, you know, uh, an adjective. That's probably the most common way. You know, I have faith in something or, uh, you know, I, I, it's like I believe in something. But faith can also be a noun. It can be a, a statement or a confession or a system or a doctrine that we live by. And you think, well, well, I'm no student. You know, I'm not a seminary student. Uh, how am I going to? Well, you don't need to be. You know, you don't need to memorize some, some systematic theology book. You just need to know that there are certain things that you believe and you need to remember them. And we need, some, some churches will read every week. They'll read a creed, like the Apostles' Creed or you know, some other creed. And they'll read it every week because they want people to remember. 
constantly remember why it was I became a follower of Jesus in the first place. What is it that I believe? Because the world's always telling us we should believe something different. It's important to know that there are lines to be drawn. So where do I draw the line? Well, I don't remember. Well, read the creed. It's just a, a concise statement of what I believe, like the song we sang last week. And we all have a creed. Uh, it's, uh, you might call it your testimony. Yeah? Our church has a creed, by the way, before we get into the personal testimony. Our church has a creed. We call it our statement of faith. And if you remember, you were given a copy of our statement of faith, and you were asked to read it and look through it and study it and pray over it, and then you were asked to agree with it. And if you don't, then you got to work on some things, Okay. Because all of us believe some very basic things. And our statement of faith, believe me, is very basic. We don't get into a lot of peripheral issues, and some people would like us to, but we don't. So it's very basic. It's a creed of sorts. Read it over once in a while. If you, you know, why did I join this church? Well, let's read that, that statement of faith again. But we all have a personal creed. We call it a testimony. I want to go, and I'm going to have to kind of fly through this a little bit, but... We got started late because I went over last time. Uh, if, you, if you have a Bible, you want to turn to John chapter 9. I want to show you how a personal testimony is developed. You don't need to memorize the Apostles' Creed. You don't need to memorize our Cornerstone Church statement of faith. But you do need to remember what caused you to come to Jesus in the first place. And after you came to Jesus, what did you learn? What have you learned along the way? And in John chapter 9, we have a blind man. He was born blind, and that's a very important part of this story. He was born blind. And he's standing around probably begging for a few shekels, you know, because he can't work and so he needs, needs a little sustenance help. So he's standing around minding his own business and suddenly... He becomes the object of this huge theological debate. So there he is standing there, and uh, the disciples point to him, and they ask Jesus, who was it that sinned, this man or his parents, that caused him to be born blind? Now, they were, they were echoing some false teaching that they had gotten in synagogue as they were growing up. So Jesus immediately corrects their theology. He says, neither. Right away, we learn that simply because somebody is sick, ill, imperfect, that does not mean that sin was the cause of it. We have lots of imperfection in the world, and sin has nothing to do with it. In this case, Jesus said, I won't, let me back up. Sin has not, sin doesn't have anything to do with a lot of it, okay? <laughs> a lot of it is, is man-made. Uh, but here Jesus corrects his disciples. He said, well, neither one. Wasn't him, wasn't his parents. The only reason this man was born blind is so today I can heal him. And God's power can be demonstrated. That's the only reason. It has nothing to do with any of these other theories that people have bought into. Then Jesus, without asking permission, because he didn't live in a litigious society, 
make some mud out of his saliva, yeah, germs, bacteria, viruses, you know, and a little bit of dirt. He makes some mud, and then he puts it on the man's eyeballs. Oh, I'm sure that was nice. And he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so the man does so. Um, he goes and, and does that. And then in verse 11, it says, the man they call, they, uh, the people ask the man, you know, how is it, you know, you were born blind, how can you see? He says, well, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and then I could see. That's his testimony. That's his creed right there. That's it. He's simply telling what he knows, like a witness in a chair, a witness chair in a, in a courtroom. He's simply telling the facts. That's what happened. So then the uh, skeptics dragged him to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and they uh, maybe wanted to get an answer, but probably more importantly, they wanted to report this guy who had broken the law. Somebody healed on the Sabbath. Big no-no. So um, if this man was healed on, by Jesus and it was done on the Sabbath, that would constitute working on the Sabbath, and that was not allowed. Of course, that's the most important thing in this story, right? That Not that a man was born blind and got to see, but that somebody broke the law. So the Pharisees ask him the same question about how he went from being blind to being able to see. And in verse 15, he says, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. That's, that's my statement of faith right there. That's what happened. So then they conclude that um, Jesus, the Pharisees conclude that Jesus could not be from God since he broke the Sabbath. Other Pharisees though argued that would make him a sinner, and sinners wouldn't be able to heal the man, would they? So then they turned back to the man, the blind man, the formerly blind man, and they asked him what he had to say about this theological conundrum. And in verse 17, he says, he's a prophet. Whoa, his statement of faith just got something added to it. <laughs> he, now he's a prophet. Well, he's thinking this through. He must be a prophet. How else could he do this? So an investigation ensued and witnesses were called. His parents were asked to verify that this was his, their son, that he was born blind, and they wanted them to explain how he can now see. <laughs> because obviously they would know, right? They're his parents. Uh, well, they didn't like uh, being in the middle of this potentially legal, uh, illegal action, so they simply said... He's our son, but look, he's a grown man. Speak for himself, you ask him. So then they called the man uh, back before the Pharisees and uh, commanded him to tell them that Jesus is a sinner. And in verse 25, the man answers, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Now he's not only a prophet, but maybe he's not even a sinner. Because he healed me, he must be better than most people. Nobody else has ever healed me, right? Fifth, they demand another recounting of the incident. Tell us about it again. And he says in verse 27, I've already told you, 
and you didn't listen to me. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Ah, the man has made the step from taking this prophet who might be sinless to following him. He's now a disciple. That's his statement of faith. So they yelled insults at him because they didn't give him the right, he didn't give him the right answer and he insisted that uh, that they were followers of Moses, someone that they uh, know was spoken to by God. And as for this Jesus, they didn't even know where he came from, you know. So in verse 30, the man says, well, that's remarkable. You don't even know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God... He could do nothing. Whoa, let's add to this statement of faith. This man is from God. See, his personal testimony, his personal creed is growing as he understands, as he thinks through it, as he interacts. Well, after he's, they're all done with, uh, with him, he goes off and Jesus finds him. And, and I, I believe that he finds this is a kind of a personal Thing. He's not with a, a bunch of his disciples and stuff. It, it, it seems to me that he's, he's finding him on his own. And uh, he asks him if he believes in the Son of Man. And the man asks that Jesus point him out so that he can believe in him. And here he's using the word believe in that sense where I want to put my trust, my faith in him. Yeah, absolutely. After what I've been through, after what I've been, been hearing, after what I've been thinking, yes, I absolutely believe in something. Man, you just point them out to me. He says, well, you're talking to him. And verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. See, we all have this personal creed. We all have this testimony. It's not exactly like his, but we all have something. Our life has, has given us something that we believe. And I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And this blind man's testimony is simple. He simply told others what he knew and that he deducted to be true from the evidence. And as a result, he ordered his life around what he knew, not what he didn't know, not what he had to uh, learn from people who didn't know anything. He simply said, this is what God has done. This is what is true. We all have a testimony. It's that simple statement, what God has done for us, how we've responded to him, and that's it. Like the blind man, we were spiritually blind, and God has given us sight. And we can tell people that. You don't have to go to seminary to, to figure that out. You just have to know what God has done to you. That is faith. Father, I want to thank you for this day, for this time that we had together, for this concept, this, uh, I don't know if it's a thing, but this idea that we can come to you simply by faith, that we don't have to wait for that day when we will have incontrovertible evidence, ev proof, but that we can trust you because of what we know about you and what you have done in our lives. We thank you and we ask that you help us to continue to grow in that faith so that we can serve you better. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.